Welcome to Trial Alchemy. Important issues are decided and amazing things happen every day in civil jury trials. In this podcast, I'm going to interview outstanding civil trial lawyers who are members of the American Board of Trial Advocates, ABOTA. They are the very best plaintiff and defense civil trial lawyers. To be admitted to ABOTA, they had to have tried 20 or more civil jury trials to conclusion had to be excellent trial lawyers, and also had to be honest, civil, and professional in their interactions with their opponents and the court. We'll talk about what works and what doesn't work when you try a case to a jury. Hi, I'm your host, Monty McIntyre. I've been a California civil trial lawyer since December of 1980 and a member of ABOTA since 1995. These days, I help settle cases as a mediator and decide cases or issues as an arbitrator and a referee. I also mentor lawyers to help them become excellent civil trial lawyers and mentor law firm associates to quickly become productive members of their firms. This podcast is brought to you by California Case Summaries, an online civil case summary publication that enables California civil lawyers to always know the new case law in their practice areas and apply this knowledge to gain a competitive advantage over their opponents to get better results and win more cases. Thanks for joining me today. Hi everybody, I'm Monty McIntyre and welcome to this episode of Masters in Trial. Today, I'm delighted to have as my guest, Douglas DeGrave. He's a founding partner of Poliquin and DeGrave up in Orange County. Doug is a diplomat in the American Board of Trial Advocates, ABOTA, and currently serves on its national board of directors. He was the president of the ABOTA Foundation in 2021. In 2013, Doug served as a president of Calabota where he led the effort to add a pledge of civility to the attorney's oath. Doug served as the president of the Orange County chapter of ABOTA in 2008. In 2016, Doug was named the Cal ABOTA Trial Lawyer of the Year, which is a terrific award. He was presented with the Cal ABOTA President's Award in 2014 for championing the cause of civility and he received the Orange County chapter of the American Board of Trial Advocates Trial Lawyer of the Year Award in 2011. Doug has been named since 2007 in Southern California Super Lawyers. Orange Coast Magazine has included him in its list of top attorneys in Orange County since 2010. And he was named to the list of top 50 lawyers in Orange County and top 100 defense lawyers in California from 2018 to 2020. Doug has an AV rating for Martindale Hubble, which he's had for more than 25 years. Doug's tried a couple of cases. He's tried more than 100 cases to verdict or judgment. And he is frequently asked to substitute into tough cases at the last minute before trial. He specializes in the defense of personal and catastrophic injury cases, wrongful death, truck and bus accidents, insurance litigation, insurance bad faith claims, and construction cases. Doug has served as an arbitrator and a mediator, privately and for the courts, and he is a frequent lecturer on insurance bad faith, trial practice, and ethics. 
Doug, thanks very much for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Mike. So, Doug, as a very experienced trial lawyer, I want to start with what is one of your most satisfying trial victories? You know, I was thinking about that, and I'm not sure I have one. I have a brief period of time in 2017 where I was brought in at the last minute on several cases, and I tried three of them back to back to back from uh, August through December of 2017. Wow. Got three defense verdicts. And frankly, that's largely due to the team of lawyers who were back here in the office working up the cases and helping prepare the witnesses. But uh, that was probably the most satisfied I've ever been as a trial lawyer to know that I could come in at the last minute and try cases like that. Well, that's great. That's really wonderful. And they were just back to back, right? Back to back to back, all three of them. You, you didn't even have a time for any kind of a, uh, uh, you know, uh, decompression after each trial. You just had to go to the next one? Uh, each one. One of them was like two days later. And I think the third one was three or four days later. <laughs> so there was no break. No break. Boy, you were really uh, you were really going. So Doug, as a defense lawyer and as one of the top defense lawyers, what are some of the real successful themes when you have a jury trial? And good trial lawyers want to have themes and try their cases. What are some of the great themes that have worked for you in your cases? I don't know how great the themes were, but one of the ones I've used more than a few times is personal responsibility. And I use that both when I'm arguing that we have no liability and that plaintiff is responsible, but I also use it when I am admitting liability and saying that my client is stepping to the plate, they're accepting the responsibility for the accident. So that's a theme I've used both ways. When I was a younger lawyer and handling more car accident cases, I would sometimes use the theme of sort of litigation lottery that you know this was just an attempt to get money that they weren't really entitled to get. Um, I don't use that anymore, but I did use it earlier in my practice when I was trying sort of small uh, traffic accident cases. But I think you always have to have a theme when you're in trial and you have to be true to that theme really from the beginning of your case and jury selection right through the closing argument. Yeah, and in, in working with your team, you got to make sure that your team is helping get the case prepared before the trial, long before the trial, and they're doing the stuff you need to do during the trial, right? That's true. Yeah, you and, have to have your staff back at the office really keeping things moving, keeping witnesses lined up, because you don't have time to do that when you're in the courtroom. So right. you have staff, your assistants, paralegals, and the attorneys back at the office trying to handle that for you. Yeah. So in um, like in those uh, three trials where you got those three defense verdicts, 2017, what were some of the plaintiff's themes that you were defending against in those cases? Well, all three of those cases were truck cases. Okay. Uh, one was involving a motorcycle and the other two were accidents on the freeway, one of which our truck went through the center divider and there was like 11 or 12 vehicles involved. The plaintiff's themes in one of them was that our truck was exceeding the 55 mile an hour limit for trucks, that he was in the wrong lane, and um, neither of those things were actually true. 
Um, he, actually, he was going 56 miles an hour, but the bottom line is, had he been going 55 miles an hour, the accident wouldn't have been avoided. And our theme in that case, actually, was that we were hit by another vehicle trying to get on the freeway, mm -hmm. clipped us, sent us off course through the center divider. And ultimately, um, the jury believed that and gave us a defense verdict. But during jury selection, I don't think I've ever had a tougher jury selection because the jurors all hated truck companies. They all hated truck drivers. They basically told me they'd never find for my client. Um, but then ultimately, after three weeks of trial, based on witnesses, testimony, and the way the case went down, they did come around. But that was probably the most difficult jury selection I've ever had. Well, I bet you were a little nervous as you were getting those answers and those people were going to stick on the jury. <laughs> I went into the judge at one point during a, a break in a chambers conference, and I said, should I just give up? And he said he'd never seen anything like that in jury selection before. Yeah, boy, that is amazing. Well, in terms of um, before we get into the jury selection, which I want to talk about soon, uh, I want to ask you this question of, of the different parts of the trial. And good trial lawyers have different opinions on this. But what, in your opinion, is the most important part of the trial and why? I'm torn between jury selection and opening statement. Jury selection because that is your first opportunity to make a connection with the jury. And I know especially judges will say that you are not there to try to pre-instruct the jury. You're not there to try to begin convincing them. Um, my position is if you're not doing those things during jury selection, you're not really doing your job. So I think it's important because it's your opportunity to connect with them and to lay out what your plan is for the case. Opening statement, um, because I changed the way I do opening statement over the years, pre-reptile theory becoming a, a big issue in California. I would just tell the story about what a great guy my client was and kind of give the factual background of the case and then get into the specifics of the accident or whatever the case facts are. Since then, I start right out with my position on liability. So if I'm going to say we're not responsible for this accident, those are literally the first words out of my mouth. If we are responsible for the accident, but we're contesting the injuries, that's what I'm going to say in my opening sentences of opening statements. So I lay the ground root, uh, work right there. And then in opening statement, I also typically challenge the jury to hold me to what I said in opening statement. When they get to the end of the case, was my evidence consistent with what I promised them in opening statement? But I also ask them to hold the other side to their opening statement. So I think those really are the beginning of the trial, the most important part of the case. Yeah, and they're both very, very important. Now, speaking of the opening statement and jury selection, how frequently in recent years are you giving uh, many openings from the judge and are they being requested compared to, you know, 20, 30 years ago when it wasn't so common? Well, I never even heard of it probably until about eight or nine years ago. And at first I resisted 
Now I ask for it every trial. I love the opening, the mini opening statement. Um, one to two minutes, but you sort of, again, get to make that connection with the jury. You get to outline your case without really arguing it, but you get to outline your case and sort of give them a preview of what's coming in, in your full opening statement. So I find now, most of the time, both counsel, plaintiff and defense, want to do a mini opening. Yeah. And you leave, you limit yours to just a few minutes. Most courts won't let you go more than two minutes. Right. And so I always time mine, whatever they tell me, one minute, two minutes, that's all it is. That's good. Now, um, when you were talking about your opening statement and you invite the jury to keep track of what you were saying and see if you prove it, and you also ask them to do that for your opponent, um, that seems to me you're getting to the issue that I think is quite important in trial. I want your thoughts on that. In your view, how important is the issue of the credibility of the attorneys and the credibility of the parties and the credibility of the witnesses in a jury trial? Very important. And I think what is often overlooked is the credibility of the attorney because a lot of people will say, well, the attorney doesn't really matter. It's, you know, the search for truth and what the witnesses and the parties say. But as the attorney, you have to maintain your credibility. You have to be professional. In my mind, you have to be civil, treat everyone with respect because you don't want to run the risk of offending the jurors by something you may say to somebody else. And so I think you really have to be careful as the attorney to professionally, civilly, respectfully represent your client. You can be a zealous advocate without being a zealot. So um, I think credibility of the attorney is extremely important. The credibility of the parties is very important. Um, you really want to prepare your client for what's coming, whether it be examination under evidence code seven, uh, evidence code section 776, or just regular direct examination. So I don't tell them what to say. Sometimes you have to tell them how to say it. Um, and so I think it's very important. Witnesses also very important, but you don't necessarily have the control over the witnesses that you'd like to have and what's gonna come out of their mouth at trial. But credibility is key in any trial for both sides. Yeah, and as somebody who's tried over 100 cases, and I haven't tried uh, probably as many as you, but juries watching everything, aren't they? They're watching everything. I mean, they're gonna watch the way you treat that clerk. They're gonna watch the way you interact with the bailiff. They're going to watch the way you interact with other people in the courtroom, in addition to how you deal with the judge, all that stuff. And that's blending into that credibility of the attorney as well, right? It absolutely is. And in fact, I tried a case in February in Palm Springs, and it was with a younger plaintiff's attorney, and she didn't know how to use the Elmo. So without making a big production of it, I turned it on, focused it, and then I just had her hand me her exhibits and I put it on. It wasn't a big case, wasn't a complicated case, so we didn't need tech people in there. I usually use a tech person to assist me. Um, and I just showed her exhibits for her. 
And the jury noted that and afterwards said that they could tell that the two attorneys got along. We liked each other. We kept it professional. And I typically tell jurors during jury selection that the plaintiff's attorney and I are adversaries. We're not enemies. So if they're expecting the type of explosive shows they see in television and movies, it's not going to happen because she's doing her job. She's a professional. I'm going to do my job and act professionally. And if they expect less of us than that, they're not going to get it. Yeah, well, that's great. Um, you know, there's some things you can control and there's lots of things you can't control in the courtroom. But one of the things that I always felt in the courtroom, and I imagine you're doing the same thing, I figured my goal is to not let anybody out nice me. At worst, they might equal me and it's a draw. But more often than not, and I'll bet you've experienced this, you're being a nice guy, you're being civil, you're being courteous, and the other side isn't. And that can make a difference, can't it? it? It absolutely can. And I love it when that happens. Although I find um, as I've been doing this longer and longer, I don't find that happen as often. Right. Um, I've been blessed, I think, recently. Most of the attorneys I've tried cases with have either been a BOTA members or certainly type of an attorney that a BOTA would want, a very professional and civil in the courtroom. But years ago, I've, I've had all sorts of things happen. Um, and you have to be careful not to take the bait. Yep. To continue being professional, being civil, being respectful to everyone in that courtroom. Not only in the courtroom, but anytime any of those jurors are going to see you. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. So in the hall, in the cafeteria, in the parking lot. Right. So, Doug, uh, we talked before today's interview, and one of the things that you mentioned is you have tried some cases kind of since we've been coming out of COVID and after all the shutdown and all that. And I think a big question on probably lots of people's minds, both um, California but around the country, is are juries acting any differently after coming out of COVID than they, you think they were acting in trying cases before the shutdown? And what, what's your experience been? You, you know, my partner, Mark Poliquin, and I have talked about this because he's tried a few cases um, in the last few months. And we've kind of come to the conclusion that it's a little tougher to get a defense verdict than it may have been pre-COVID. And I think cases where pre-COVID, I might have expected a 12 and 0, I'm not getting them, I'm getting a 10 to 9 3. Um, and I think it has changed a little bit. I had a juror come up to me after the last trial and say they really wanted to go with plaintiff on the case, but the evidence just wasn't quite there. And um, so I think. I think things are changing a little bit and that jurors are becoming maybe a little more sympathetic to persons injured in, you know, professional liability cases or in, in auto accident or truck cases. So I do think there's a bit of a shift. Um, but I can't say that it's real demonstrable or that it's really affected me. Okay. 
So when you're going through the voir dire and you're, you know, judge asks questions, you get to ask questions, plaintiff's lawyer asks questions. On the defense side, are there are there some types of jurors that you are fairly regularly looking for to try to keep on the jury? Or do you have things change depending upon the facts and the nature of the case so that's really not very common? Yeah, it's, you know, I try to each case come up with what I think a good juror would be on that case. But I have to tell you, I'm one of those that doesn't look at jury selection as any kind of a science. It's, it's really just a gut feeling, um, how you feel about that juror in the moment, whether just something they said just doesn't quite sound right to you. And so based on a gut feeling and nothing more, I may strike them on a peremptory strike. And, you know, just speaking of that real quickly, if states start doing away with peremptory strikes, I think it's a huge mistake because there are many times, you know, in your gut that a juror isn't a good fit for your case, but they're not saying things that are going to get you a challenge for cause granted. And so I don't necessarily have a statistical juror that I want every case. I kind of just go with my gut on a case by case basis and what I feel about that juror, how they're interacting with me and how they're interacting with my opponent. Okay. And, and uh, there has been quite a development over the recent years, 20 plus years of jury consultants and they're used quite regularly in cases but uh, not always used by everybody and not used in every case. So do you use jury consultants? And when you do, what kind of cases? And when you don't, why not? I actually use them rarely. And I kind of love when I have a case where the other side is using a jury consultant. And, um, and I'm not, because it's sort of a challenge to see, okay, you know, how's this case going to come out? Those three cases I was telling you about in 2017, and each one the plaintiffs had jury consultants and I didn't. Um, so I don't necessarily think their psychology and what they think about the perfect juror is always on point. I'd rather depend on my own gut feeling with regard to that. Where I would use them is a case, one, where my client would be willing to pay for it. And, and two, where it was a case where there might be significant exposure in excess of whatever the policy or the assets are of my client. Yeah. But typically, I don't retain jury consultants. So you're, you're using your gut reaction to make the call. And in making your, your gut reaction or your gut reaction coming out, sometimes people are saying, well, you know, I like people who are on the defense side, more of an engineer, or I like this kind of job category, or I like this kind of education. Uh, you know, maybe I don't want somebody who was a philosophy major in college or something like that. I mean, do you use any of those general concepts as well? I do. So I, I, I'll be honest, I do like engineers. Um, I don't really like doctors, but sometimes I don't mind if I have a nurse on, on uh, my jury, especially 
if this is a case where I'm going to prove that it's, you know, excessive treatment or unreasonable bills, things like that. So I, I often like nurses. I don't like lawyers on my jury. Yeah. So I'll be honest with you. Um, if I can get rid of you and you have a law degree and you're in that panel, in that veneer, you're gone. Um, I just think it's hard for a lawyer, even if the lawyer is not a trial lawyer, even a litigator, to not try to judge what you're doing in terms of the case. So I just tend to not keep lawyers. So do I use those types of benchmark? I do, um, but not all the time and not every case. But yeah. So they're right. part of your mix of what you're trying to think about in evaluating them. Right. Now, you, you mentioned a minute ago peremptories, and you're probably aware of this, but last year, a court of appeal published its decision came down that talks about the uh, challenges you can make to somebody for a peremptory challenge are no longer limited to just race issues under Batson and Wheeler, but now there's all these categories of race, uh, sexual identification, all this kind of stuff. Have you seen that in your cases, and has that in any way been impacting your ability to make peremptory challenges? No. Okay. No, because I, when I make challenges, and I haven't seen it come up with my opponents either, when I'm making challenges, it really has to do with their reaction to what they're hearing about the case or what their, maybe their biases are with regard to truck drivers or their experiences with truck drivers. I did have a case one time where I did represent a uh, poultry uh, company. And through some research people were doing in my office, I found out that one of the potential jurors was a not only a vegan, but an anti-meat um, person. You know, you don't eat animals, you don't eat chicken or fish you know, a vegetarian, a vegan, actually. And yeah, I, I got rid of that person just based on that. Yeah. Um, it wasn't really based on anything she said during four deer. It was based on that alone because of her website. Okay. So now when you're, uh, you picked your jury, you've got your jury and your alternates, and you're going to give your opening statement, um, you're probably going to be, what you've got bad facts in every case. Sometimes you got worse bad facts. Sometimes you got more bad facts. But how do you deal with the bad facts for your side of the case in the opening statement? Um, I probably already talked about them in uh, jury selection. But if it's not a situation where you can really do that, I definitely bring it up in opening statement. Um, the last thing I want is for the other side to point out the bad facts. I'd rather they hear it from me. So I think you maintain your credibility if you're just honest with the jury and level with them and say, look, you're going to hear these facts. They're true. And then explain why they're not necessarily relevant to the facts of the case or why there may be some mitigating circumstance, but it needs to come from you. Okay. And in terms of... Uh... When you've got, you can have bad facts, but you could also have, uh, like in your, so many of your cases are tort cases, but you know, a really good plaintiff 
can be a tough opponent if they're very likable, if they've got some serious damages. And how do you deal with that really likable plaintiff in voir dire and opening statement and throughout the trial? So typically, I'm going to probably comment ab about them in jury selection and certainly in opening statement. More importantly, I'm not going to bully them on the witness stand. Um, I'm going to ask them the questions that are needed to be asked, but again, respectfully and politely. And, and maybe um, I'm only going to say a couple of things to a really good plaintiff such that I've said something to them and they understand that I'm there in the courtroom, but I'm not there to bully them. One of the cases I was telling you about, I tried in 2017, uh, the two of the plaintiffs, there were three, but two of the plaintiffs were just extremely sympathetic, likable people. They did nothing wrong. They were truly victims, but not really of my client. And I said very little to the plaintiff uh, on the stand, I don't even remember what I said, but just very nice. Sorry for what you've gone through. You know, didn't didn't grill her and left it at that. In a wrongful death case, the plaintiff mother of the decedent was Catholic. She talked about on direct examination how she praised the rosary and, you know, how her faith has got her through this. About the only thing I said to her was, sorry for your loss. And, and by the way, in this case, my client was very responsible for the accident. It was about how much. And I commented that based on her faith, I suspected she had the hope and the belief that she would see her son again. And she said, yes, I do. Thank you. And I sat down. That was it. Not going to bully her. I'm there. You know, I'm not really the enemy. Um, I sympathize with what you're going through, but we got to get through this case. Yeah, good strategy. Now, we're talking about a number of things here, but I want to go back a little bit, and you would be doing this before the trial. So when you're trying to get ready for a case and your jury selection and opening statements and trying the case, do you ever use focus groups or do mock trials? And what do you see as either the benefits or the lack of benefit of them? So I have, I don't make it a practice. Again, I'll do that when there is excess exposure or when it's clear that maybe our primary limits of the insurance company's policy are most likely uh, going to be exhausted. Sometimes then, because there's an excess carrier, we'll come in and we'll do a focus group or a mock trial. But again, I'm not a big fan um, necessarily. I can learn some of the things that maybe I'm doing wrong and correct them beforehand. But because a, a focus group or a mock trial is really not the same as putting witnesses on the stand and examining them and cross-examining them, I don't necessarily find them to be accurate. We did one with three different juries, one presentation, but three different juries. They all um, deliberated separately. And the best one for me came back at 10 million. The worst one came back for me at 29 million. Wow. We defense the case. Yeah, your actual 
because in that situation, you know, they weren't getting the evidence as it would really come in and getting that sense of the advocacy. They were they were getting presentations, right. um, which each side was going to prove. And I just didn't find it to be that helpful other than maybe to um, encourage me to work harder because they were saying it was between 10 million and 29 million. Yeah, that would encourage you a little bit, I'm sure. Yeah, it scared me. <laughs> yeah. Well, in terms of... Um, working hard and that kind of stuff, you're probably going to be working uh, very hard all the time. Uh, when you're sitting there in the courtroom, Doug, and you've done all this hard work to prepare, um, I don't know about you, but I can remember when I had either uh, one of my parties on the stand or I had an expert witness and they're being cross-examined by the other side. And you're just going, please answer the question properly. <laughs> you ever have that feeling? All the time. You're sitting there trying to keep your poker face and you hope they don't destroy the case. Well, you prepare your, your client and you think you know what they're going to say. And you think you know what the truth is. And then they go off and say something you've never heard before. Yeah. And, and yes, you're right. You have to try to keep that poker face and not react. And um, sometimes the leg is really shaking under the table. Oh, yeah. Well, but that's that's why I think your experience is right about focus groups, because they don't know what happens. And, you know, I've, I I think you could say, hey, you could have a perfect practice in the in the lawyer's office, but you don't you don't know what's going to happen in the courtroom. And the only story and the only testimony the jury is going to hear is what happens there. And that's how they're going to decide the case. Right. And nobody knows how all those witnesses are going to do because they're not going to do it perfectly. Right? That's right. And I had a, a client who testified in a wrongful death case who was testifying in handcuffs. Oh, my um, goodness. Now, the funny thing was that they swore him in before the jury came into the room. And then he kept his hands down where they couldn't see him. <laughs> but afterwards, I asked the jurors, I said, so, you know, did you notice anything unusual about my client? And they all laughed and said, yeah, he was in handcuffs. <laughs> yes, he was. Oh, that's funny. Yeah, it wasn't funny at the time because I was just afraid he was going to lift up his hands. But it didn't matter because they already knew he was shackled. So, yeah, they really catch everything. They do. So, Doug, when you've you've started your trial, given your opening statement, actually in your opening statement and throughout the trial, and we've kind of alluded to this, but do you tend to like to use uh, demonstrative evidence and also, um, you know, digital evidence to show the evidence to the jury, show the story, or do you tend to be more old school or use more simple tools, which are quite effective, like Elmo's, things like that. What do you like to do in terms of telling the story from your side? Well, again, for me, it depends on the type of case in the courtroom. Um, you know, in Palm Springs, they had an Elmo and that was sufficient because we didn't have any real technical issues. We did show some testimony by video, but in a typical truck case, I have a tech person with me um, because I don't want to rely on my own computer skills 
um, and have something shut down when I'm trying to use some of these programs. So I usually bring in a tech person. Um, they have whatever demonstrative exhibits I want to use during closing primarily. I don't use a lot in opening. Um, and then when I'm calling out evidence that's you know been admitted or that I'm allowed to publish, I'll have him put it up on the screen. I use pretty much the same person all the time. So it's a combination. And then in closing, I use a combination of physical exhibits. Um, sometimes used to be a chart that I would write on, but rather than do that now because of technology, you can actually show the chart and have it marked on as you're talking. Yeah. So I use a combination. I even still occasionally will use a blow up. Um, so for example, with my uh, closing argument, I have uh, an ability now through the tech guy to put up the verdict form and have the boxes checked as I'm talking without touching them. Just push a button on the yeah. remote and it checks the boxes. So it's a combination of things I use because two things. One, it keeps, keeps me from using notes too much. And two, it makes me move around. So I'm not standing behind the podium, which I don't like to stand behind the podium for the entire closing argument. And this kind of does help you to move around and be more fluid in front of the jury. Yeah. Okay. And in terms of, um, you know, when you're talking to the jury in voir dire, and then you're talking to the jury in opening statement, what's your physical relationship to them in the courtroom compared to how close you may or may not get to them in closing? Well, again, I guess it depends on the setup in the courtroom. In the Palm Springs case, it was a relatively small courtroom. So we were allowed to stand in the well five feet from the jury box, mm -hmm. which was nice. Um, but in a bigger courtroom, a lot of times the judges won't let you get that close. Right. So it really just depends. I like to be in front of the jury box probably at least three to five feet away from it for part of my closing. So yeah, that I can totally. actually look at them and relate to them. Uh, but I don't get any closer than that. I had an attorney one time in closing argument had his hands on the jury box and was leaning in. And you could tell the jurors didn't like that. Yeah. I never want to invade their space, but I want to be moving about in front of that box while I'm talking to them. So we can make eye contact, we can we can talk and relate to each other, even though I'm, I'm doing all the talking. Well, in terms of the uh, jury in the closing argument and you're getting within that range of them, you're gonna be making eye contact, I'm sure, with all of them, but are you also focusing some of your attention on people that you feel may be decision makers in that jury and leaders and what are you trying to do with them in closing? Well, if I think I know who the leaders are and typically you do have a good, um, good feeling about that, I try to persuade them. So, you know, it's not like you would think I was talking directly to them, but I probably make eye contact with them more than I do some of the others. Right. Um, but if I feel somebody is adverse to my position at that point in the trial, I try to make eye contact with them, too, and get a sense of are they hearing what I'm saying or are they arms folded across their chest and sort of 
pushing me away and ignoring what I'm saying. I'm trying to identify those people during closing argument, but paying special attention to the people I think might benefit me be on my side and persuade other jurors. Okay. Now, when you've got, uh, since you're on the defense side, you're going to argue that there's no liability in a lot of cases, uh, but you also are going to have occasions where even though you're going to say you think there's no liability, you'll still discuss damages. So what's your strategy of how you're going to address damages, even though you want them to find no liability? What do you do? You know, typically I will say something to the effect of, well, I don't believe there's liability in this case. And I'm confident you're going to come back. Marking question number one, no. I don't think I'd be doing my job if I just ignored what plaintiff is telling you about the damages. So I'm going to address them, even though I don't think you'll ever get there. And then I do address them because I think most of the time it's going to be a mistake if you ignore them, because if, if you argue liability, ignore damages, then they're going to think, well, you must agree with the number. I don't know if that's true, but that's always been my philosophy. I just tried a case in Palm Springs where I did not address damages. I just went on the, I'm confident it's going to be a defense verdict, but typically I will address damages. Yeah, that's a pretty risk to take, big risk to take to not mention damages in case they get to it. It is. So, um, and, you know, these days, and it's it's been true for years and years, but the, the tendency on the plaintiff's side is, you know, if you're a plaintiff's lawyer, you want to try to get the best verdict you can for your client. And there's a lot of tendency on the plaintiff's side to try to get some huge verdicts. And they're trying to shoot for the moon and, you know, hit the thing out of the ballpark. But have you seen that backfire? And, you know, how often have you seen that happen? Yeah, when they come in with really unreasonable numbers, it, it does backfire because, among other things, it does allow me to say something to the effect of, well, ladies and gentlemen, now you know why we're here. You know, a case maybe has a value of, six, $700,000 and they're asking for 15 million. I like it when they do that. Um, more um, difficult for me is when they come back with a reasonable number. Yeah. And then what do I do with it? Because I don't want to admit that it's a reasonable number because I'm arguing liability. Uh, but on the other hand, I can't knock it too much because I know it's a reasonable number. So you have to be really careful with that. So I like the outrageous requests for damages at the end. And I'm always nervous about the ones that are borderline reasonable. Yeah, well, the outrageous is an easier one for you. It is a lot easier. And when they come in being reasonable, that makes it tougher on you. It's harder on you. <laughs> now, when you other side credibility. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I don't know. I think more plaintiff's lawyers should be thinking about this, but I've done enough plaintiff's trials. I was always concerned. I didn't want to ask for a number that I might offend the jury with. And, and I think that's something to be considered. Well, I think it is. And I think the good experienced plaintiff's lawyers do that. But a lot of them do get up there and try to hit a home run and ask for the moon. They'll 
they'll start right out in jury selection. You know, would you be offended if I asked for $50 million? And it, it's not a seven figure case to begin with. Yeah. Um, I like that. I like, I like it when they do it sooner than later. If they want to do it in voir dire, great. Some judges won't let them bring up a number in jury selection, but some let it go. And if it's an outrageous number, I'm, I'm happy. Yeah. Now, in terms of when you talk about damages, and um, maybe it's something where they've asked for something that's not quite as unreasonable as we've mentioned, but maybe you don't think it's quite reasonable. <laughs> and so you're kind of uh, in between those two positions. What kind of uh, analogies or suggestions have you made that you found to be pretty effective in helping a jury come up with a number that you thought was more reasonable and realistic if they did award damages? So in the damages part of my closing argument, I, I do rely on jury instructions. I do show them the jury instructions and have them highlighted at the portions that I think are important. So I talk to them about the reasonableness of the medical bills based on the instruction. Um, and what evidence has been presented on the reasonableness of the special damages, whether it be the medical bills, the loss of earnings, whatever the special damages are. And typically, I, I think a lot of plaintiff's attorneys will do some sort of a per diem, you know, give her right. so much per day for pain and suffering. And uh, they get to a big number that way. And I always point out that the reason they do it, the reason they use the per diem is because they can get to a really big number. And you'll sort of think, well, that's reasonable so much per day. But then let's look at it realistically. What is a fair amount of recovery for pain and suffering in the future based on what we heard from the medical doctors? I mean, I will talk about it at some length to try to overcome this idea of giving them, you know, a per diem, $50 a day for the next 50 years or however they want to do it, because that just artificially gets to a very big number. And I've seen attorneys handle it very effectively. And I've seen it bungled when they try to go that route, because they end up with a number that's just unrealistic. And what I find is interesting and what I like is when a plaintiff's attorney will use a per diem, but never add it up. Because while they're talking, I'm out there adding it up. And then I will tell the jury what they're really asking for is this number, <laughs> to add it all up. So that's how I've handled it in the past. Um, one of the things that's happened in the last 15, 20 years is with the Howell decision, we've had a real change in what's admissible on the issue of medical specials. And I think there's been a great tendency for a lot of plants lawyers to either not even put in any medical specials if the insurance payments were too low, or they will send their patients out to lean doctors and just try to get these doctors to say, hey, the amount of the lien is X dollars and have these really high numbers. You know, how have those issues and now having issues of what's reasonable medical costs and all that, how have those things changed 
the jury trial in front of the jury, have they made it um, more difficult or is it a good thing or is, what do you think about these changes? So with regard to Howell, um, if there is a Howell number and we know that there's a Howell number in there, then I typically will work up what I think the real number is and present it to plaintiff's attorney and say, if this is the number you will want to put up based on what was paid, I'll stipulate to it. Won't make you lay a foundation. I'll, we'll make anybody testify to it. We'll enter a stipulation that these are the medical bills. More often than not, even though they have insurance or Medicare, whatever they have, they'll treat on a lien. Yep. And they'll have these huge numbers that really make no sense. Like, you know, surgery centers for epidurals, you know, they're, they're just outrageous for, you know, an hour and a half procedure and it's $20,000 per injection. So then I'll have my doctor comment on the reasonableness of the bills. Because even though they treat on a lien, you still have the ability to argue the jury instructions as to what is reasonable for that procedure. Right. So that's how I do it. And I'll usually have a chart and I'll have the number. Now, it used to be a paper chart. Now it's usually digital. But I'll have a chart with the claimed medical bills on it. And then the numbers will pop up with what my doctor said were reasonable numbers. Um, and then show the two side by side. In terms of um, in terms of uh, the jury being able to award damages when the plaintiffs don't even present any medical specials, do you find that the jury has some difficulty in trying to come up with a number for non-economics, or do you find that they're not really troubled by that? Um, I, I think my experience is that they are a little troubled by it because I'm probably the first one to point out there's been no evidence of any medical bills. They're not even asking to compensate them for the medical bills. And I don't try to explain it. I'll let them try to explain it and rebuttal. So I, I think it does, it can be made difficult for the other side if they waive medical bills, but I have found it in situations where I thought it was really pretty smart to waive economic damages, like in a wrongful death case, waive economic damages. And I think that's very effective. They go right to the loss of love, society and companionship, the, the heart of the damages in a wrongful death case. Probably the last few I've tried, the plaintiff's attorneys have very skillfully waived uh, any economic damages. Hmm. So when we uh, get all the evidence in, actually, let me ask you the one question that you alluded to earlier, which is um, how frequently do you see the plaintiff's lawyers calling your client under 776? Virtually every trial now, I should say literally every trial. Yes, I, I always expect that the plaintiff is going to call my client first under 776. And you know, I've always seen that, I've been practicing 41 years, I've always seen that, but now it's every single case. And I get it, if it's a truck accident case and we're liable or there's a good argument that we're responsible, they're gonna put my truck driver on first and try to muddy him up as much as they can. And it can be very, very effective. 
it can be effective, but on the other hand, you can also do a, your examination during the plaintiff's case. And so part of your story is coming out early too. So how has how that sometimes helped you? It has, it has, because first of all, I, I prep my clients for 776 and I prep them by cross-examining them and letting them know what's coming. But you're right, because they do the cross and then immediately, right at the beginning of the trial, I have the ability to do my direct examination, rehabilitate my client if they've damaged them, or if they haven't damaged them, just highlight what a good case I have during their case in chief, first witness. So it can work both ways. Yeah. But I always but, expect now that my client's going first under 776. Yeah, I, I, I've come to see it over the years as definitely a double-edged sword. There's definitely benefits for the plaintiff, but since you don't just get to cross and sit down and they go back to their chair, there's also benefits for the defense too. Right, and I don't ever uh, reserve my right to do the direct later. I do it right then. Yeah, I think that's the better choice to do it then and get it on right then. And now you're starting to put on your case. You know, though, today with calling witnesses out of order, it happens so much now that you're putting on your cases in each other's cases anyway. Yeah, yeah, very common. So in terms of um, you get to the end of the trial, you get ready to make your closing argument. That's also very important. Um, what do you do, and I'm sure you're gonna talk about this to the jury, but you know the plaintiff's lawyer is gonna get a second bite at the apple after you give your argument, and how do you address that issue with the jury? So I tell them <clears throat> that the plaintiff's attorney is going to have an opportunity to address them again, although I won't, and I explain to them it's because plaintiff has the burden of proof, and I then just say to them, when you're listening to what plaintiff is saying in what's called rebuttal, and you're not sure of something he's saying, or you're wondering what our position would be, just ask yourself, what would DeGrave say if he had the chance to come up here again? And I just give him a comment like, you'll know the answer, and leave it at that. Let him know it's coming. Let him know they should scrutinize what's being said. Um, but that I'm not going to be able to get up there and talk to him again. So um, when you have cases other than the three you had in 2017 back to back, <laughs> what's your process for getting through the uh, 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 crash that you always have of the adrenaline after a trial and then resting up and getting ready to go again, but you got to get some rest after a trial. So what's your process for trying to get rested up and ready to go again? Honestly, I'm usually back in the office the next day or two, but I will tell you this, uh, at my age now, it is much, much harder to recover from a trial, even one that's not too complicated. It's not contentious. It does tend to take a lot out of you, even though I get invigorated by trying cases. Yeah. But at the end of that week, two weeks, three weeks, whatever, I'm really worn out. And I might come back to the office and just stare at my computer and go, Dad, I don't want to be here. 
I've just had this high of trying a case regardless of the outcome. And now I don't want to sit at my desk. But so far, I haven't really just gone and taken a vacation after a trial. I'm going to have to do that. Yeah, well, you know, you get the adrenaline crash and it's good for you to get that sleep you need and rest up. And you're probably not going to be too productive for a few days after the trial in the office. Definitely not. You're definitely not. Now, uh, in, in terms of getting prepared for trial, there's a lot of hard work, as you know, and you're spending hours and hours for every courtroom hour trying to get ready and know the case and all that. Have you, over the years, developed any practices that help you get through that grind time of just focused work to get ready for trial before the trial starts? Well, you know, first of all, having tried a few cases now, it, it there are certain things I know how to do and I don't fret about it as much. Yeah. But the truth is, a few years ago, my son, who's a lawyer, he's a public defender in Orange County, tries criminal cases and tried several murder cases. He um, was staying with us one time because his house was being uh, remodeled. So he and his wife and two of our granddaughters were staying with us. He was in a murder trial and I was in a wrongful death case, same floor of the Orange County Courthouse. And he'd get up in the morning and there I'd be at the dining room table working at five o'clock and at night till 11 o'clock working for the next day. And he came in and this was only maybe five years ago. He goes, you know, dad, I can't believe that you can still work that hard when you're in trial. It's just what you do because you know the stakes are high. So yeah, I still spend a lot of time preparing for trial, during trial, getting ready for the next day. And then having clients complain like, this must be a mistake. You build more than eight hours on that day. How is that possible? <laughs> and I had one client one day said, you actually build 14 hours. You made a mistake. Didn't you mean eight? And I go, no, I'll check. I get back to him. I said, you're right. It was actually 16, but I only build you for 14. Yeah. Isn't that amazing? So when you're in trial, Doug, uh, I imagine this happens to you a lot, but how often once the trial starts, do you just feel like you're in the zone and you're just now all that prep work has paid off. You can now do what you have to do, react to all the things that come up and there's lots of things that are going to happen unexpectedly, but isn't that the really fun part of the trial? It is. And I think if you do your homework and you prepare properly, you know it when you're in that courtroom and a witness will be testifying and you almost can't wait to get up and cross-examine. Yeah. Um, or, you know, closing's coming up and you can't wait to get to closing argument because you prepared your case. Um, and because I think I still have uh, a bit of a, inferiority complex or Catholic guilt or whatever, I really do prepare my cases because I don't want to be in a situation where I'm in that courtroom and I'm not doing the best I can for my client. I may not win it, but I don't want to be embarrassed that I didn't do a good job for him. Yeah, you always want to do your best. You can't control yeah. when somebody else decides a case, you can't control what they're going to decide, but you can control whether you prepare as right. good as you can. Absolutely. And, you know, I agree with you in all the cases I've tried, not as many as you, 
my motto has been nobody's gonna out prepare me i'm That's gonna work my, work my butt off and i'm gonna know this case and may win may lose i want to win but nobody's gonna out prepare me and that, when that you do lose i'm sorry i didn't mean to cut you off go ahead when you do lose you know i still feel like it, it's a kick in the gut but I don't take it personally if I can walk away and say, look, I did the best I could do. The facts are the facts. The jury decided what it decided. I'm disappointed. Um, but, you know, I'm not going to be too upset about it because I did the best I could do for that client. Yeah. And I think that's what you that's the way you should look at it. You do your best. Somebody else decides. Right. You can't, you can't control that. Well, listen, we're getting near the close, and this has been wonderful to talk with you about these different issues. Thanks so much for sharing your experience and your wisdom. I want to ask you a couple more questions to finish out here. So one question is, um, and it could either be, what's the best piece of advice that you got as a young trial lawyer that you would give to somebody now, or it could be, What's the best advice you would give to young trial lawyers now? I think they're the same. So when I was a young uh, trial lawyer, I worked briefly for a lawyer who was teaching me to be a zealot, to be kind of a kind of a bully. Um, and I one time went to a firm for a deposition. It wasn't a trial and kind of acted that way. And this wise old partner who at the time was younger than I am now <laughs> said, you know, Doug, when the depot is over, stick around for a few minutes. I want to talk to you. And he sat me down and he gave me this advice. He goes, it takes, you know, 30 seconds to make a first impression and 30 years to undo the damage. He goes, you don't want to practice in the mode of your boss at that time. And he talked to me about a BOTA and he talked to me about civility and professionalism and respect for not only the profession and the courts, but your clients and your adversaries. And I adopted that back in 1986 when he sat me down and I have agreed with that ever since. And that is the same advice I pass on to our young lawyers. I tell them, look, Plaintiff's attorney is not your enemy. I mean, you're both doing your jobs and right. you're both giving voice to your clients. And frankly, without plaintiff's attorney, you wouldn't have a job. So <laughs> treat them the way you want to be treated. Right. And I just thought that was the best advice and it's the advice I give. And then it was a plaintiff's attorney at trial one time that said to the jury, do you expect Mr. DeGrave and I to be enemies. And one juror said, yes. If you saw Mr. DeGrave and I at lunch together, would you be upset? Yes. And this attorney said, Mr. DeGrave and I are adversaries, not enemies. And I've used that ever since. I say that to every jury because I think that's so important, not only for the young lawyers to understand, but for jurors and people outside the system to understand. We're adversaries. And then as Shakespeare said, you know, something to the effect of, you know, you go out afterwards and you eat and be merry. I'm not sure exactly what the quote is, but probably with one or two exceptions at the end of every trial, 
I've walked away, whether I knew that attorney well before the trial or not, considering him or her to be a friend. And I wanted to mention that. I think that's one of the great joys of the trial profession. When you try cases the way you do and members of a voter do, is how much you created some phenomenal friendships with people you tried cases against. And you were at first adversaries, but not enemies. But then you became really great friends going through that crucible of the trial together. That's true. And I think it's important. And I think it would be important for young trial lawyers to learn that early on and adapt that for themselves. Yeah, great advice. Great advice. Well, thanks for sharing that. So now any final thoughts or suggestions that you want to give for the viewers? No, not that I can think of. Just keep up the good work, Monty. Hey, well, Doug, thanks very much for being a guest. I really appreciate it. You're an outstanding lawyer, but also a great guy. So thanks very much for being a guest. I really enjoyed the interview and I know the listeners will. Thank you very much. Thank you.